0: I was uh, startled this week by a question that I read in my study. It relates to the very text we're going to get into in a moment. Uh, John Stott was writing and he posed this. He said, quote, How can we take so lightly what God takes so seriously? And I'd like you to sit with that for a moment. How is it that we take so lightly? That which God takes so seriously it might help us if we if we thought for a moment together. I'm going to ask you a question. A few of you just kind of yell out some things, but when you think about it, you know, what is it that God takes seriously? What well, you know, it would kind of help us. What what are some of the things you'd go? This is what God takes seriously. What what would the, what would some of those things be? Just yell it out. Let me. I can hear it. What, what what would they be? What would some of them be? What does God take seriously that we love, that we love Him, justice, justice. Orphans. orphans, mercy, purity. Purity. purity? Yeah, we we could go on. You see, these things that God take. These things that God takes seriously. Uh, we could go on, and and uh, there are are many many more. Uh, We've actually, if I can say this, and I I could go longer, but we we haven't actually said the one he takes most seriously yet, though. We still haven't said it. And I'll say this. We're going to get to it. Um, And I think this, when we get there, and please hear me on this, all those things matter. Okay, It's like they they do, they're serious. But uh, mm, there's something he takes more serious than all of those, (laughs) and everything flows from it. Uh, It's not going to surprise us when we land upon it here in a few moments, but I do think it may cause us to think more seriously. And if we think more seriously about it, I want to suggest that we may just live differently. Uh, The Ephesians, uh, as they experience uh, this, what Paul has to say, something amazing happens, and I want to suggest the same can be true of us. I've struggled all week with how to teach this. I, I had it. I had the message practically written, and yesterday morning, about nine thirty, I just, I just stopped. I, I rebooted, and and decided I would take a different direction in light of the text and, and my own struggle with it, and what I think God would have us hear. So there's no outline. Okay, there's no outline to this message. You know, we, this happens sometimes, and. Now, I'm going to ask you to simply go along with me. I, I, I'm going to go quite fast, if I can say that, on the front end in light of time. It's 13 verses that we're going to cover. I can't cover them all in detail, so there'll be some things left uh, unsaid, a few stones unturned. But I want, to, I want to move quickly through it and just point out some, some key words and thoughts. And, and honestly, when we go through it, it'll be like, okay, okay I, I get what he says. And then I want to take the back end and go, well, in light of what he says, and well, what does that mean to us? What do we do with that? truth. Ephesians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 13. I'll take it again, just a few verses at a time, one twosies and threesies. Verse 1, let's take that as we start. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason, now for this reason, you know, he's just referring back to all that he said in chapter 2 about Jew and Gentile. You know, that they're now one. Okay, so it's all of that. Bill Brown spoke last week, it was a fa- fabulous to have him here. Bill's a, a former president of Cedarville College. You know, he'll speak, I think, one more time here, maybe twice at the Franklin campus. As Bill, Michael, and I have these gaps in our schedule. That's all that is, this is his opportunity. He's available to, to fill in for us, and we're glad that he is. But Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, He, 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 he stops. <laughs> so that's what that dash is. You know, what a da- you know what a dash is in Greek? It's a dash. It's no, there is no punctuation. It's just he stopped. He was writing. He had a thought. And when he said, for the sake of you Gentiles, he stopped mid-thought, mid-sentence. And then he goes, verses 2 to 13 are, I believe, a spirit-directed digression. And in this way, it's almost like the Spirit wants to actually highlight these verses 2 to 13. I mean, they're like he marks, the Spirit marks them with a yellow highlighter because it's so important it interrupted his thought. If you look at the, the chapter as a whole, it's not hard to see where he was going. I want you to see this because then you, you know, you'll, you'll maybe take a sigh of relief and go, okay, I know where he's going. Verse 1 begins, for this reason, look at verse 14, verse 14, chapter 3, how does it begin? For this reason, you see, this this is where he was going. I want to suggest that where Paul was going was this. Here's Here's what he intended to say. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, I bow my knees before the Father from whom ever... You see, that's where he was going. He's going to pray for them. But boy, this phrase, for you Gentiles, it sparked something in his mind. And we get verses 2 to 13. Look at verses 2 and 3. Uh, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Well, here he goes. He starts off, if indeed, and by the way, if if you've read is more literally since you've read. He's not wondering if they had. It's more since you've read this, okay? Since you have read this, he goes on to say that he was given something by revelation. Is a key word in the passage. Uh, Revelation is that which is opened up. In other words, there's something in here, you can't see it. And you'll never see it unless it's opened up. And he got something opened up for him. You see the passive verbs? Made known to me, given to me by revelation. He uses this word stewardship in an interesting way. Stewardship is the Greek word oikonomia. It is, It is house steward. It is a manager. It is a steward. And think about a steward. A steward doesn't own what he's been given. What does he do with it? He manages. I'll tell you what he does. He distributes it. He moves it as the owner wishes. It's an interesting thought, isn't it, that, that Paul says he is, uh, has been given a stewardship of grace. We'll come back to that. In a moment, when he says, "I wrote to you in brief earlier," there's no other. We don't believe it's another letter or anything like that. What we think grammatically is it's simply this: "See above." So, you know, when you read a book and it says, "As I see above," in other words, you look at the previous paragraphs. And what were the previous paragraphs? Chapter two: Jews and Gentiles are together. He goes more into detail on that. Verses four to six, he writes. By referring to this, look back at chapter 2, this is what he's saying. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery... uses that word, and I use it several times here, the mystery of Christ... ...which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men... ...as it has now been revealed, opened up, to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit... Paul, what exactly is this mystery you're talking about? Well, he says it in verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles, and then he, he gives three descriptors. And the only way I can say this is it's like when in, in, in the Bible when you see that Trinitarian phrase, holy, 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 you know, is it one holy enough? Well, yes, but it's for emphasis, it's for fullness, it's for grandeur. And he does the same thing here with how how close are Jews and Gentiles. I mean, how how really in are the Gentiles with the Jews? Well, notice he has three phrases that he uses. They are fellow heirs. Look, everything in chapter 1, it's the blessings in Christ. It's Gentiles. They're fellow heirs. It's all theirs. Fellow members of one body. That word, by the way, is a Greek word that Paul made up. It's found nowhere else. Fellow member. It's the, the idea that... They are so in, they're organically, you're together, you see, one body. And then the third thing he says is fellow partakers, recipients, you see, of the promise. Interesting, it's singular. Fellow partakers of the promise. Now, we know this is true. We're all fellow partakers of every promise in the Bible, all the promises. But why did Paul here say of the promise singular? What promise is he talking about? What do you think? So I want to suggest he's going all the way back to the promise. Genesis 3. In the fall, I promise I'm going to send a man one day born of a woman who will crush... That's the the Gentiles' promise? Yes! That promise is further elaborated in Genesis 12 when he chooses Abram. Abraham will form a nation and through you all the nations... See, he's saying Gentiles are partakers of the promise of a Savior and a Messiah. He gets very personal in verse 7 and 8. He goes on to say of which I, I Paul, was made a minister. It's servant is the word, according to the gift of God's grace. There's God's grace again, which was given to me. That's what grace is. It's that which is given according to the working of his power. Just an, an interesting thought here. Uh, you know, we often view uh, ministry as our gift to God. you, you know how you can kind of think that way, but it is interesting Paul says that that that, that ministry that 's being a servant was actually god 's gift to him. God, god gave me the gift of ministry. He also says he did it by his power, which we could talk a long time about this, but just in principle. That which God calls you to, that which God gives you for, He empowers you for as well, always. And then verses eight and nine, to me, speaking of Himself again, with the very least, it's a funny word here. It's if we translated very least in English, it would be least or ist. It's like below below, you know, it's almost it's a crazy word. To the very least. Of all the saints, this grace was given. Why, Paul? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable, which is untraceable. You cannot trace the blessings of chapter 1 to their end. They're untraceable. There's no bottom. You'll never reach the end of them. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light... What is the administration, which, by the way, is the same word in verse 2, stewardship. He says, to, to bring to light, what's the stewardship? What, what's the management? What is it? How do, how do I manage the, the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? Verses 10 and 12. Uh, get to the heart of the matter that I'm going to address here on the back end. Verse 10 begins, "So that now, now we're getting to." Let me tell you why I'm saying all this. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you what God's up to, been about always. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose. But when did this purpose begin? When's it going to end? Go, go, go! Eternity in both directions. This is always God's purpose, which He carried out. He brought forth in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom uh, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Manifold is exactly what you think it means. It's multifaceted. In, in Greek literature, it, it was used of. Um, multiple flowers you know that's a beautiful picture all different shapes sizes colors you know multifaceted it's 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 god's manifold multifaceted wisdom Isn't it interesting if we we were just taking that verse? It's this God has determined from all time, beginning at creation, in fact, before creation, uh, and all the way in time and to eternity future, He has always determined that His multifaceted wisdom would be displayed to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And when you get into this, you know, you, you almost feel like you just stepped into a fantasy. Spiritual rulers, in heavenly places. Look over at chapter 6, verse 12. It helps us a bit to understand this. We'll get there this summer, actually. Verse 12 and chapter 6, Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Men and women, when he speaks of the heavenlies, please understand. He's not talking about heaven uh, and, and, and don't go to geography. Don't, don't go to, oh, it's a place. The idea is it's a reality. There's a reality that there are rulers and authorities, spiritual beings, just as real as this thing. I mean, you know, you just have to go, Lloyd, that's real. There is a, an invisible reality that's just as real. I don't think it'd be wrong to say, in some ways, more real if I could say it that way, even than the physical realities we live in. I'll come back to it in a moment in verse 10, but verse 13, let's grab that because here we see why, in part, Paul made the digression. Why did he kind of interrupt his thought and say everything he just said? Well, he answers it pretty much in verse 13. Therefore, in light of everything I've just told you, I ask you to not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, what does he mean? I think we can get it by, by, by simply tracing what Paul has said in the previous verses. Let's just kind of, let's take it, let's take it, you know, how, how, how Paul says it. I, I think he's, you know, let's imagine if you will for a moment that, you know, Paul did preach the, preach the gospel to Gentiles. And by the way, it landed him in jail, Acts 21, 22, 23. If you read it, it's crazy. But boy, Jew and Gentile, you know, in the early church, it, it did not, it was, eh, eh, eh. and when Paul said, you know, Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles, they, you know what they said? When Paul said, you know, Jesus told me to go to the Gentiles. At that moment, they said, this man deserves to die. Golly, you know, there's that's some real hatred going on there, right? Well, so, he's, so, so Paul says, I preached, and he did. He preached to the Gentiles. And, and now he's in jail because of it. And, he, and maybe he thinks to himself, you know, the, those, the Gentiles I preach to, when they see that I'm in jail, they may be, as he says here, they're probably losing heart. What do you mean losing heart? They're probably, they could be becoming very discouraged, losing hope. I mean, because they may be sitting, you know, in Ephesus going, how is it that God would allow Paul to be incarcerated and suffer in jail? Who, who it, wait a minute, who, what, what God would allow that? Paul was just doing the right thing. He was simply telling the truth. And you see, Paul knows they could be losing heart. And so Paul pauses in verse 1. And then what does he do? He basically traces through and says, look, in the gospel, Jew and Gentile are one. And I was made a minister of that gospel to tell that to the world and to preach that to the Jews. And I want you guys to understand the fact that you are now in Christ Jesus. And the fact that I am suffering because I preached it. Oh, that only goes to show the reality that God is redeeming, has redeemed the Gentiles. And you see, your faith is your glory. What do you mean? Your faith is demonstrating to rulers and authorities in heavenly places, God's manifold grace. You see that? So Paul just says, hey, hey my tribulation, listen, that's your glory. Because it shows God's purpose and plan from all the ages is simply being worked out. You know, one of our greatest encouragements, gang, to not losing heart is to be reminded. As Paul reminds them, isn't it? Can I boil it down like this? Paul just, you know what Paul does? He stops his thought and he says, I gotta write something to him. He writes 13 verses, and you know what he says? God's in control. Don't don't be discouraged. I'm just, you know, that's three words in 13 verses, you know. God's in control. That's what he said. And that is, by the way, one of the ways you and I don't lose heart. When life's moving in ways we don't want and hope is waning, you see, what do you do? You go, wait, I got to remind myself God's in control. Now, here's the key. There's only one place you can go to be reminded that God's in control. That's, that's it. I'm telling you, you can't go read a different book. You can't, you can't look at your circumstances. You read it. it, it it's, been, you see, it's been revealed to us that he's in charge. Notice what he says over here in verse 4. He even told them, by referring to this, what? By referring to what I just wrote. And then he says, when you read it, you can understand. You see that. So we go to the Word to remind ourselves mm, God's purposes move forward. Let me, let me grab three things I want to suggest that we can pull out of the text. And I guarantee you there's a dozen. But I'm going to just grab these few and, and, and uh, get to our question that we talked about at the beginning. First thing I, I want us to grab is this. Notice how grace shows up here so many times. It would be this principle. Grace received is grace to be distributed. You see, grace received is grace to be distributed. Uh, Paul says it this way. He says, remember, he says, the grace which was given to me for you. See, It's never the grace which was given to me, period. No, it's the grace which was given to me for you, He says, What in verse 9? He said, The grace which was given to me to preach to you. See, grace is that which is given, but it's always given to be distributed, always. We have a tendency when when we speak of grace in terms of salvation, we go, You know, it's grace alone. There's nothing you can do to be, you can't work. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, not by works. It's grace, all of grace. And so, so we, we have this tendency that when we speak of grace, we want to keep this other word far away from it. We don't want to bring that word out here like works. We want to keep it far. But I'm going to tell you something. Paul, the New Testament writers, they don't hesitate. Grace works. <laughs> they're, they're all, it's always together. Grace works. Yes, yes. Grace, responsibility, Grace obligates always. No, oh, oh. we don't work for our salvation, but boy, once when we're saved, oh my gosh, James, faith without works. You know, when we're genuine, faith works. We always keep that together. Grace that is received is grace to be distributed. Now, a second principle i take from this is distributing God's grace could put you in prison. It did Paul, literally. Um, none of us, I, 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 I don't think that you know, we're going to go to jail. I don't think any of us will, but you could. But I, let me get it more in a timeless principle, okay? So, since we'll, we'll remove that, you know, go to, could put you in prison. It might be this. Distributing God's grace will always cost you something. So when, you, when you extend grace, it will always cost you something in this world. And I've got a uh, sneaking suspicion. You know I, know, I know every generation says this. And so I'm just getting in line, saying my part. But what's in front of us is going to be much more difficult to distribute grace than it was 20 years ago. Because when you distribute grace, you speak the truth. You say what's true. You say what's been revealed. <laughs> and in our time and day, certainly that's going to be, continue to be very difficult. But I don't want you to miss this as well. You know, distributing God's grace could put you in prison, but we don't want to miss this. Prison cannot hamper the distribution of grace. Jail, challenge, difficulty, hardship, up, cannot thwart the distribution of grace. I mean, we're reading a letter, men and women. We're reading a letter, 2,000 years old, that he wrote while he was in prison. The gospel moves on, <laughs> as we see it always moves on. Well, let me grab this last thing. Uh, I said at the beginning, uh, Stott's quote, Why do we take so lightly what God takes so seriously? What? I mean, what? If there were one thing that he takes most seriously, what would it be? And I want to suggest there is. I want you to look at verse 10 again. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the what? What's the word? Through the through the church. If this is saying what it seems to be saying, what God has been about, note the timestamps now. For all eternity, for all ages. What God has always been about is the church. Now I know everything we said in here matters to God, it's important, but I'm gonna tell you something. According to Paul, he says it's the church that he takes most seriously. The church. That 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 it's the church that shows heavenly spiritual beings. The manifold, glorious wisdom of God to redeem that which was lost. To do what we sing oftentimes, to triumph, to death, triumphs over death, right? Who could have thought of that but God in Christ Jesus. And it's, who it's on the church, you see, to manifest that. I think in ways that we can't fully grasp, the scripture clearly teaches that, uh-uh, you know, the church is the focal point of God's Work, it's, been, it's what he's been about, to gather that people to himself that demonstrate how wise and glorious are his ways. We, you know, we're gathered here today, we sing, we pray, we're listening to teaching right now. But I just want us to, I don't even know how to communicate it. But there is a sense to the, that, that what we are about is way bigger, it really is, than, than what we take it to be. You pull up a news feed, you know, on your, you know, your iPad or phone or look at the newspaper this morning, whatever. You know, what you read is you read, you go, this is what, this is where the action is. I mean, the actions, you know, with NATO right now, it's all about Putin trying to take over, you know, Ukraine and they're going to have a meeting and the G7 is going to meet and, and boy, is is Iran going to get these nuclear weapons or whatever and what's going on? And And you think that's, that's, that's what rules the world. No! The most important Meetings not G7 and it's not NATO and it's not the European Union, it's the church. It's us. And you guys are looking at me like, I think you're overstating it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. According to Paul, there is no more important meeting than that of God's people. And that's which he calls the church. Now, you might say, well, Lloyd, you know, he's talking about the universal church. Um, you know, you're, it's kind of self-serving for you to talk about the church that way. <laughs> I want you to know, I'm not talking about it for me. I'm talking about it because the Bible says it. And universal church, Yes. Yes, it's the universal church. But do we all understand that the universal church, and what is, the universe, what is the universal church? It's every believer everywhere on the planet for all time. Yes, it's the universal church. But the universal church, as we read our Bibles, the New Testament knows nothing of a universal church apart from a tangible, real, you know, people gathered together, us, locally. See, that is the universal church. You can't separate the two. Ooh. And it makes our gathering, you see, way more important than we think it is. It's cosmic in scope. He didn't write these letters to an invisible universal church, he wrote them to a group of people like us. I'm not saying we're the only church, by the way, I'm just saying like us who gather. And fundamentally, let's just go kind of just down to the, just the ground level. Who, hmm, who are born of his spirit, who are in Christ, they, people who have believed, uh, who practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table, uh, who, who practice church discipline, and who uh, do it all under the authority of a plurality of elders. There, there's, there's the church. I'm just going to tell you, that's not a home Bible study. I'm going to tell you this. Everything we see in the New Testament tells us you can't express the manifold wisdom of God to the angelic beings by yourself. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I don't need the church. I don't need to go. I don't need. No, you can't do that. Well, well you can, but just understand you're not expressing God's glory when you do that. I'm just asking myself the question, and I'll ask us, how serious are we about the church? Don't, don't, don't hear me. You know, I'm not going to sit here and now go, you need to sign up. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, you, know, you need to join. No, no, I'm not. I'm just going to say this. How serious are you about the church? Because according to Paul, it's what God has been about. It's what he's about right now. And it's that which he's going to be about forever. Man, what a privilege. What an honor to join him in that. You may say, well, I'm not convinced. I'll just, I'll say this. Flip back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I think we can agree that here's what God's about in verse 10. Paul wrote, with a view to an administration, that's that same word, with a stewardship suitable to the fullness of the times. In other, You know, the question we can ask here is, what's it all about, God? Well, it's about this, the summing up of all things in Christ. The things in the heavens and things on the earth. That's what it's all about. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is speaking of Christ, and he gave him, Christ, as head over all things to, what's the next words? To the church. I don't think I'm exaggerating it at all. I'm trying, I'm, I want to, I simply hope I'm not. I don't want to be true to the scripture. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, you remember this, the, the light shone around him. You remember that? And you remember what Jesus said? Paul, or Saul at the time, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting? What did he say? What did he say? Me. Now you think about that. Paul had done nothing but beat Christians up and kill them. But according to Jesus, who did he beat up and kill? Literally, who? Him. And this begins to make sense, I think, when we recognize, gang, and this is what he said in Ephesians that the church is Christ. You individually, us together, one new man. Ephesians 2 11 to 18. One body. Well, what's the body? It's Jesus. He's the head. We're his body what God has been about and will be about for all eternity. I said, how can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? I'll just ask you this question. This will be your kind of pondering question, okay? What might it look like for you to take the church as seriously as God does? That's all. what, What might it look like? I can tell you this, as elders, as staff and leadership, we we've been in the process in the last two years. Bill's been leading us through some processes where we're, I'm looking at Matt and Gigi McMurray down here, who who Barry and Melissa, who 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 you gotta understand, they, they, were, they were here when there were six people, six couples, I should say. And, and and now we're a church, you know, the size we are. And it's not about being a big church, but 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 you know, over time we can find ourselves, you know, things we need to adjust and change, et cetera. I'm gonna tell you something, as elders. We, we have literally and are literally going, kind of re upping. Can I say that? Just going, and this arrests me to go, we got to think seriously. What we need to do different? How do we make disciples? I mean, it's fine, y'all. You know, I, I like, honestly, teaching to a room of 800 rather than 29 or 88, I, I'm, you know what I'm saying? But that's not why we're here. We're here to make disciples. What does that mean? How serious? I'm just telling you as elders and leaders that we're thinking about that. And I might encourage you to do the same. Let's stand up. I'm going to send you out with Paul's benediction that follows his prayer that Bill will cover next week. But but here's a thought. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do this, and I, I don't think anybody will, okay, but... You know, it's so, uh, it's so common for us, is it not, when we're in, in the South, in Nashville, I don't know where, but, you know, at least in this area, you know, you start talking to somebody, what's one of the first things you, you ask them? Where do you go to church? <laughs> That's okay. Um, but I was, I was just kind of thinking about it, and, and I think it actually reinforces an unbiblical view of church at some level. H- here's what I mean. It, it just reinforces it. We don't mean to, but it does, because when you say where do you go to church... It it basically says church is about what attendance. <laughs> you know, it's kind of where do you attend. And uh, here's a question, again, just this is just for us, okay? What what if what if you were talking to someone and rather than say where do you go to church, what if you said so? From what church do you dispense grace? <laughs> They'd go what What are you talking about? I, You But it might make for an interesting conversation. Uh, I I would challenge us in this way. I I don't want to ask it unless I'm living it. And may we, by God's grace, uh, live that. Paul says this at the back end of the prayer bill we'll cover next week. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever, amen. God bless.